what? We finally got the 2024 Messy Reformation Conference on the schedule. Block off your calendars for April 15th through the 17th, 2024. The theme for our first ever conference is Courageous Leadership, with a particular emphasis on what courageous leadership looks like in times of Reformation. In our current Reformation, the CRC needs leaders who are willing to stand firm in their convictions and lead their churches, classes, and denomination with courage and boldness. We've designed this conference to help equip, encourage, and paint a vision for what that courageous leadership will look like wherever God leads us. To find out more about this conference, or to get signed up right away, head on over to themessyreformation.com. Don't wait to get signed up. We need people to get signed up as soon as possible to get a handle on how many people are coming and what to expect, so don't wait. And don't miss this opportunity to equip yourself connect with fellow leaders, and be part of this messy reformation in the CRCNA. As you know, whenever reformation has happened in the history of the church, things get messy and courageous leaders are needed. That's why we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church, find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. It's also important for you to know that you are our marketing plan. We rely on you to spread the word about what we're doing at the Messy Reformation. We rely on you to share our content. We also rely on you to give us five-star reviews and provide good feedback for this podcast so that the algorithms push our content further into the world that needs to hear what we're saying. You are the marketing plan, and we believe we've placed our marketing in good hands. You can also support us financially on Patreon or Substack. All the money raised is used to fund online hosting and build the platform of the Messy Reformation. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Nick Monsma. So Nick, why don't you uh, kick us off and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and the church that you're at. Yeah, so uh, I have, have I'm a husband of one wife, uh, and uh, I have two kids who are in uh, we're kind of right on the on either side of the middle school age. And we live in uh, in upstate New York in Palmyra, New York. I am uh, now a member of uh, of East Palmyra Christian Reformed Church. I was previously the pastor at the church for uh, almost nine years, and then. Uh, spent a few years in California as a pastor of a church in California. And then a couple of years ago, we moved back to the area and I'm currently serving as the chaplain at East Palmyra Christian School, which that's sort of my ministry work is, is there doing that, overseeing kind of the anything having to do with the theological direction of the school or the uh, spiritual community among the students and so on. But I also about half my time is devoted to teaching uh, just kind of covering whatever classes need to be taught as the school grows. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's that's what I'm up to. Um, my wife is a physical therapist, so she also works in the area. And uh, yeah, this this feels like home to us. I both my wife and I grew up in West Michigan in Hudsonville, but um, yeah, we look around and uh, especially for our kids, but really for our family, we look around and say this is home. Yeah, so we're. So I don't know where Palmyra is in New York, but are you getting hit with all this crazy snow that that's been delaying all the football games over in New York? No, we we tend to get snow at different times than Buffalo. So okay. uh, I, 
these the cities across Western New York here, Central and Western New York, Buffalo, Syracuse, and Rochester are. I think the case can be made that they are the snowiest cities in the United States. I mean, maybe something in Alaska. I don't know, but um, actually, I don't, I don't know that Anchorage gets as, as much snow or um, or Fairbanks. I think people but, would be surprised, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think these are the snowiest cities in America. But because just because of the orientation of the lakes and the direction of wind, we tend to get snow at different times than Buffalo. So if you're hearing about snow in upstate New York. Uh, it's probably happening in Buffalo. And if you're not hearing about it, it's probably happening here. So <laughs> that's great. So, so did you grow up in the Christian Reformed Church? Yes. I grew up in in a Christian in the Christian Reformed Church. I went to Kelvin College, went to Kelvin Seminary. Uh, my wife, interestingly, though she grew up in Hudsonville, Michigan, uh, did not grow up in the Christian Reformed Church and in fact hadn't even heard of it until we started dating just before we both headed off to college. So um kind of an interesting i think it um yeah it's it's been good for for our marriage and for and for my ministry to have to have in our household these two perspectives on the crc from very much inside it and then also from outside of it yeah yeah for sure how in the world does somebody grow up in hudsonville and not hear of the crc I don't know. You'd have to ask her exactly. But okay. All right. <laughs> paying attention to certain things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 You don't want to get yourself in trouble if you're white. No. <laughs> we'll, we'll just move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've actually found that helpful because my wife didn't grow up in the CRC either. She grew up actually very staunch Catholic. And so, um, so that, that had its own struggles when we first got married. Um, but that has been helpful in, in uh, just helping us, especially in my current call, uh, because our my current call is planted in a primarily Catholic city. And so most of the people in my church uh, didn't grow up in the CRC, but grew up in the Catholic church and have come out of the Catholic church. So that's given us a, a pretty good ability to be able to minister and have a good understanding of, yeah, where, what they kind of used to believe and, and even some of the things that kind of hang on pretty tightly as you come out of the Catholic faith. So Yeah. She, my wife grew up in the Methodist church and okay. she just as an example of the kind of perspective that I, that I think it has given me um, in, in ministry, she often describes how excited she was when she started attending church with me and found that there were churches that actually wanted to talk about theology mm. uh, and which, um, yeah. So uh, she sees it as a, as a huge strength of our denomination that we have a, a deep theological tradition that we still talk about, still love, uh, still believe, and are still committed to. Yeah. Oh, so I'm going to, I agree with you on that. And then uh, a, a conversation just popped into my mind and I'm not done with the whole podcast yet. Uh, but one of the podcasts I've mentioned on this podcast is uh, one called Grace in Common. It's okay. uh, with, with some Bovink scholars. And uh, I just started listening to an episode where they're interviewing Nick Waltersdorf okay. and they're asking him kind of about growing up in this kind of neo-Calvinist tradition and all of that. And, and he made a really interesting point. Um, he said, they asked him like, well, did you hear of Bovink? Did you hear of Kuiper? Like, what did you think of their theology and all of that growing up? And he said, um, actually, I never really heard about their theology growing up. I only heard about their encouragement to have us engage culture. That's all I ever heard about growing up in the CRC. And I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I think probably I, I would say the same, 
the same thing, uh, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it was just, it was interesting. Well, one of the things that I've been kind of poking at, I guess, and that's why I found that interesting, is we we had at one point, we had a we had a tradition that was very theological. And I think what happened at some point along the way, we we were like, ah, oh, we're too theological. We need to get more practical. And so the pendulum swung. And that's one of the reasons why so many people grabbed hold of Abraham Kuyper and his engagement with culture and and all of that, because this is really practical. It's a really hands-on thing, way to kind of engage culture and transform. And and uh, and I'm all about that in a way too, but I feel like it. what happened was, is we focused so much on that um, and we it got disconnected from our theology. And that's somewhat why the CRC has kind of come to the point where it's at is that we kind of got unmoored a little bit from our theology. Yeah, I think um, I've been thinking of it as identifying the the glue that holds us together. And there have been, you know, every 50 years or so, there, there were waves of Dutch immigration since since those early waves to to West Michigan and and elsewhere the, where the when the CRC started, and through those waves of Dutch immigration, what has what held the CRC together was increasingly our identity as the denomination, the 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 premier denomination in the United States and Canada for Dutch immigrants, and it's been seventy years now since we had a wave of Dutch immigration, and I. I don't think there's going to be another one. So uh, we we're finally we're finally having to reckon with the fact that that can't be if if the Christian Reformed Church is going to continue that can't be our identity. And so I think that maybe fits somewhat with your reflections there that when you make that your identity you have to you have to prioritize that that identity as uh, as um, as the denomination for for Dutch immigrants you have to pr- prioritize that over other things in our theology. So you know, yeah, we don't want to emphasize our theology if it's going to drive some of our, some of these, these uh, communities of, of Dutch immigrants away, because this is who we really are. Um, and even I think some of the, some of the Kuyperian influence, we um, were, uh, I wonder sometimes whether there has been a willingness to even put that to the side for the sake of maintaining this ethnic um, or immigrant unity. Uh, mm. Yeah. What, what types of things are you seeing that makes you kind of wonder about that? Uh, which, which part of that? I'm just trying to put my finger yeah. on. Yeah. The, the, the parts of where, where we're like even downplaying some of the Kyperianism in order to kind of emphasize this kind of Dutch immigrant um, identity. Well, I, when I, the more I have learned about Kuiper and looked back at Kuiper's theology, the, more difference I think I've seen, and especially looking at Kuiper in his time, you know, Bavink writing his his uh, systematic theology and, and and working at the same time, the the emphasis that I think I experienced and saw when I was a student at Kelvin, the, the transformationalist emphasis doesn't seem as deeply rooted in classical reform theology as Abraham Kuiper and his cohort of 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 um yeah his and his uh, and his group were um were rooted in in classical reform theology so th- that's where i see it, we can we can drift into a kind of generic christian transformationalism 
and call it Kuyperianism uh, when uh, sometimes I'm not sure it really is that reformed. Yeah. Amen. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, one of the things we've brought up a bunch of times. Uh, uh, so I didn't really hear about Kuiper growing up because I grew up again in a, in a CRC church that was more of a church plant. So it didn't have that deep CRC rootedness. And so uh, I think the first time I ever heard about Kuiper, I was in my early twenties or something like that. Um, and, uh, and so I started reading him and I was really fascinated by Kuiper and his thoughts and all of that. But then I did slowly kind of get this feeling like we're missing something. When I hear some people talk about Kuiper, it, again, it's kind of has been unmoored a little bit from, from what he said. Right. And we've mentioned on the podcast a number of times that, one of the biggest things I see when I hear a lot of people or more the more liberal members of the CRC talk about Kuiper, they don't talk about the antithesis. Yes, um, right. You know, like, and which the antithesis is like pretty core to who Abraham Kuiper is and, and believed and to his engagement with culture. And so when you lose some of those foundational things, then you do just become generic. In, in that sense of the word. And what happens is that we just begin to become more and more like culture trying to transform it. And uh, I think that's what we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what, tell us about your call to ministry. I'd be, I'd be curious uh, kind of how you found yourself uh, called to become a pastor. Yeah. So it was uh, in my senior year of high school and uh, it was kind of a, it started more, at least my experience of my call started more of a, as a thought experiment where I just, I remember I, w- I went to Unity Christian High School in, in Hudsonville and I remember sitting in chapel one one day and probably was not paying attention to whatever was going on in chapel because instead I was thinking about what I was really going to do. This was probably my fall of uh, the fall of my senior year. What was I going to do when I graduated from, uh, from high school? And I toyed around with some different ideas, and then I, I just remember thinking, well, what if I what if I just decided I was going to prepare to enter the ministry? I wonder what would happen if I just started telling people that. And uh, so I did. <laughs> and <laughs> and it was the feedback that I got from people that really confirmed that sense of call. So I, I, don't, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I was trying to combine a, a sense of, you know, that internal sense of call with an external call. And um, yeah, so from then on, I, you know, I went to Calvin, I majored in classical languages and philosophy, always with the goal of saying, I want to be as prepared as I can to, um, to enter ministry. And um, yeah, I went to Calvin Seminary and that was driven largely just for, by geographical and, and family reasons. It wasn't practical at the time for me to consider moving somewhere else to go to seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then took a call straight out of seminary to here to East Palmyra. Yeah, cool. So what what was your thought process in going in majoring, getting your bachelor's in classical languages and philosophy as a, as a track toward ministry? Uh, because I, I knew that, uh, well, I loved both of those things. So that, that was also, you know, and I took my first philosophy class. <laughs> Actually, I, I had first decided I was going to be a classical languages major because as I started encountering uh, ancient texts, uh, I, I just fell in love with the idea of having the skills to be able to read these ancient languages that people don't speak anymore. So uh, mm-hmm. that I fell in love with, but it also was sort of an obvious way to prepare for ministry to, you know, to take several years of Greek and um, and have that be my major entering 
entering seminary. And then the, the classics department at Kelvin, which I, I understand they don't have a classical languages department anymore, but it, it, when it was, when they had one, it was kind of in the back of the philosophy department, or you had to pass through the philosophy department to get there. And I loved philosophy since the first intro to philosophy class I took. And I kind of said, you know, if I'm walking through this department all the time, I wonder if I can just pick up a second major. And that was kind of my joke of why, why I did that. But I really did love, I love philosophy too. And I was kind of hanging around in that general area. So. Yeah. Did you feel like that, that degree did help prepare you for seminary when you got there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, um, yeah, I, re- I really loved being able to systematically dig into questions and think about them. Uh, the discipline of being able to ask a question and not just start defending an answer, but think about think about a variety of answers and think about what the best defenses for other answers are, and it kind of construct a construct a conversation. Even if I don't necessarily have a con- conversation partner, I think I um, yeah I found that to be to be a, a helpful skill for digging into theology yeah i think rc sproul has said that before that he because i think he has a philosophy does he have a doctorate in philosophy was that what his phd was in maybe i I don't don't remember anyways but i remember him saying the benefit of having a degree in philosophy is that teaches you how to think yeah and and how to reason and how to dive deeper into things and so he always yeah uh, rc sproul did encourage people to to think about philosophy because he felt like it helped us understand God's word and who he is uh, more deeply. Well, and to that point, yeah, RC was a philosophy major, I believe. And he also said that one thing we don't know how to do today as pastors and theologians is to think. And uh, he actually thought as a necessary prerequisite for seminary entrance, there should actually be a formal course on logic that they need to take too. And then proper biblical exegesis. So I, I think he was really ahead of the time of where we're at. And, you know, God, God bless R.C. Sproul and the gift he was to the church. And uh, Nick, I'm really, I'm curious. This is a question I ask every now and then. Who are some of your, you know, theological and philosophical heroes that you look up to and people that you've, you know, stolen things from over the years? So I have, in my, in my time in ministry, uh, I've really dug into, you know, d- dug in more uh, into some some authors than uh, more than I was ever asked to read them when I was in seminary. And uh, a Brockle is one of my, my favorite authors. And I just keep coming back to Christian's reasonable service and reading, um, just reading Brockle's take on, um, on different uh, virtues in, in the Christian life and, and the practicalities of, of, of yeah, Christian service. Uh, and I, I like to say I've become more and more of a, whether you want to say more and more of a Puritan or even a pietistic, I, as I discover these things, I, my sense has always been that this is what was missing. This focus on the heart uh, and focus on the affections is what was missing, at least from my experience growing up in the Christian Reformed Church. And I, I don't want to try to extrapolate and take my experience and you know, say this is what the whole CRC was like, but I often got the sense growing up that the generation above me of preachers above me were trained to tell us a lot of facts, but not trained to connect them with our hearts very well. And so as I read the, as I read these things, I, I found that, that those more pietistic writings really grabbed a hold of me. And I, I also have, have experienced the, the power of putting more of this in a sermon that 
when I, when I focus on preaching, not just to people's minds, not just telling them what the facts are, the historical facts and the facts of what the text means, but actually thinking about their hearts and, and preaching to their hearts, I find that um, it's, it's more obvious to me that the Spirit's work is more obvious to me uh, yeah. when, I, when I'm doing that. A hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. I, I often use the analogy when I'm preaching, my desire is to uh, reach through people's minds and grab them by the heart. Yeah. <laughs> because I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've also experienced, I've, you can, you can fall off of both sides, right? I've experienced. Some sure. Preaching. Yeah. Um, even I think I've told this story before when I first started preaching, uh, actually, I wouldn't even call it preaching. Uh, when I first started speaking, Yelling at teenagers. <laughs> Yelling at teenagers. Yeah, Willie was one of them. So, um, but I was only like preaching to the heart or trying to poke at the heart and wanting to move them and do all of that. But I wasn't doing the other side. And then I, my, the pendulum swung the other way where I was only speaking to the head. And eventually I kind of, um, as actually it was uh, reading Jonathan Edwards, um, who kind of helped remind me of the importance of connecting the head and the heart. And I mean, Edwards is known as, you know, some people consider him the greatest theologian to come out of the United States. And, uh, um, but he also said when he preached, it was his desire to raise people's emotions as high as as possible. And so while he was speaking, right, that's why sinners in the hands of an angry God uh, is so memorable because he's using illustration after illustration, moving people's emotions and hearts to understand God's word, not to just understand it, but to feel it in their bones. And, uh, as I've kind of switched my brain toward that, I mean, I want to speak, I mean, we're teaching as well, but I want to help people understand how this teaching should affect the way that they feel and, and live and how it changes our emotions on a regular basis. Yeah. In terms of uh, people who are living, who are influences on me, I have for a number of years for my own edification, listened to sermons by Joel Beakey because of that experience, that emphasis on experiential preaching. And I really, really appreciate, uh, appreciate that. And I, I think, unfortunately, given that that is, that there's, that there's something there that has been a, a part of the Dutch reform tradition for a long time. I, it, I think it's, it's sad that we have lost that in the Christian reform church or lost it to a large extent. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, not for me, one of the other people who really got me understanding the way the head and the heart connects is John Piper as well. Yes. He's been a pretty significant influence on me and uh, especially early on. And uh, I was just listening to, he just wrote a book again on, and I forget the name of it, but something about, he likes to write books on thinking and theology and whatnot. And, and they said in his most recent book on, uh, on studying how, how, how like continuing education or lifelong learning affects us. He, he uses the word feeling like 350 times, like every, you know, because he talks about the importance of learning, not just being about your head, but it's got to get deep down into your heart. So, yeah, he's been a big one for me in uh, even how God's word, right, commands our emotions and, and our feelings and how we're, we are to feel. And so that's a, it's an important part. And uh, yeah, I think when you can preach in such a way as you connect the head and the heart, um, it's kind of a whole package deal, right? That it actually yeah. takes away, you know, there's the whole conversation, you know, was it, you would know this better than me. Was it Aristotle talked about the chariots? Who's driving the chariot? Is it the will or the emotions? 
Um, I don't remember if it was Aristotle or somebody talked about that. And people are like, well, is it the head or is it the heart or is it the will is emotion? And I'm like, it's kind of all driving the chariot, to be honest. Like they're all kind of affecting how we, how we live. And so we don't just speak to the head. We don't just speak to the heart. We're kind of working on both of those things together. Yeah. 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 I, I just came across a note I had written, um, in my journal a long time ago, I was, I like to skip through my journals a little bit. And I remember I just wrote down a pretty simple line. Like you can't love something unless you know it. <laughs> so like, you can't really, you have to, your head has to be engaged in your emotions, but if you don't have an emotional kind of connection with knowledge, you don't really know it either in, in a lot of ways. So you can believe the sovereignty of God, let's say, but if it doesn't affect your emotions, then you don't really yeah, you don't really right. know thing. Right. And part of a preacher's job is to is to point people to things that they should love and and to point people away from things that they should hate and to to work yeah. on their affections that way. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's the catechism says that, right? One of the ones I quote, one of the parts of the Hubbard Catechism I quote regularly is, you know, what's involved in genuine repentance or conversion? It's you know, to hate sin and run away from it or wholehearted joy in obedience to Christ, right? And so yeah. it's uh, learning what to hate and learning where to find true joy in life is uh, what genuine repentance and conversion looks like. And our yeah. call as pastor, as we shepherd people, is to help them learn what to hate and, and what to love as they and where to find joy as they live out their faith. Right. Yeah. So what, what does your role look like in the school um, as kind of the chaplain of a school? Yeah. So the school needs um, it, it. This was all God's design. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm convinced to uh, bring my family back to the area, but um, the school has grown tremendously in the last six, seven, eight years. So I was on the board of the school before we uh, in, in uh, 2017 and 2018 before we moved away. And I remember one of those years in there, the projected enrollment pre-K through 12 was somewhere around 45 and maybe it climbed up a little bit before the school year began. But that was kind of the low point, at least in the school's more recent history. And for this coming fall, the school is enrollment right now is looking to be at least 160. So wow. the school has, you know, almost quadrupled in size, uh, you know, he, maybe in a couple of years, it will have quadrupled in size from, from less than a decade ago. And so with all that growth, there's just been a tremendous need for people to come and, and help with the project. It's a, it is somewhat difficult to find people who are qualified and uh, who share the, the school's commitments and, and worldview and, um, and, and perspective on, on the Christian faith. It, it's it's somewhat hard to find people because we're in a rural area, and mm. and it's not an area where there is a where there has traditionally been a, a large influence in Reformed theology. And the school is committed to to maintaining its its Reformed identity and its its roots in the Reformed tradition, even though it's a very ecumenical school with students coming from 20, 30 different area churches. Yeah. So it's it's always been a struggle. So I I landed there and, and they needed help with administration and especially with administration 
ensuring that the school it continues to head in the in a direction that is consistent with its reformed heritage the the current principal who is um who's only been there about five years does not have a long history in the in the reformed tradition so he sort of discovered the the depths of reformed theology people like uh, Kuiper and and Bavink and Ventil and others. He discovered them as he started working in the job as a principal. So he, um, you know, so he's and and as there's more need for for administrative help, he identified me right away and said, "I need your help." So um, so I, I help it out in administration, and of course I I lead chapel and organize chapels and so on, and think about the the spiritual community and the faith nurture of the students at the school. Um, and then I also, like I said, I, I kind of plug holes in the teaching. So the school has, I'm not sure it's, we, we resist saying that we, that we made a transition to being a classical Christian school because not much really needed to change about the school to have it fit with what people are calling today a classical Christian education. Uh, there weren't, you know, the school had not been making dramatic changes in curriculum and so on following latest trends. So it was kind of doing what it had been doing for decades. So there were only a few changes that were that needed to be made, but some of those changes included teaching a couple of logic courses at late middle school and also transitioning the English classes to focus, some of them to focus on ancient literature. And so as it turns out, my, my majors in college prepared me to plug those holes right now. So, um, I'm, know. yeah. <laughs> so I'm teaching both of the logic courses, and I'm teaching two uh, middle school literature courses, ancient and medieval uh, literature, the English courses, which I am happy to do, and I'm happy to do it until you know somebody comes along who maybe is a better fit or can teach those things full time or or whatever, or I can keep doing it indefinitely. But um, yeah, we. I, Half half of my time is really spent just plugging some of those instructional holes, as we look around. You know, yeah. I probably yeah, shouldn't teach. You... Go ahead. I, I probably shouldn't teach math. The school does need a high school math teacher, but the last time I took math was in high school. So I I, I keep saying I, I probably shouldn't. You probably shouldn't ask me to teach math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you What would you attribute kind of the massive growth? Because uh, like the Christian school that. Uh, I'm heavily involved with my kids go to is it's having a ton of growth right now as well. So I think Christian schools across the board, a lot of them seem to be growing. Uh, so what, what do you see um, in, you know, Palmyra that's kind of attributing some of this growth in the Christian school? Yeah. So I, there are two things. There is just the background growth in interest in uh, Christian schooling, as as you said, you're seeing, and a lot of this, especially, has followed from COVID and parents thinking more about their kids' education. As there were so many changes to 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 schooling, especially in public schools, mm-hmm. uh, you know, parents just start thinking about it more. And Christian parents say, "Wait a minute, are there alternatives?" So that has been some of it. But the growth at this school started before COVID, and mm-hmm. uh, so some of it, and I. I, I don't want to just look at the world with rose-colored glasses, but I do I do believe, and, I, and the more I talk about this with other people, the more they say, yeah, we see this too. There is, the Holy Spirit is doing something in this area, and it seems pretty exciting because there is a, there's a growing interest in Reformed theology all over this area. There's one, one Christian Reformed church here in this county, and then two in the county over in the uh, suburbs of, of Rochester, 
And then there have historically been a, a large number of reformed churches, RCA churches, um, and most of those have shrunk significantly. But there is a little, there's a little cluster here with our Christian Reformed Church and then two, especially two Reformed churches nearby that have, um, that have really seen a resurgence in, um, one of them has grown tremendously in the last couple of years and uh, with, with people discovering Reformed theology and just falling in love with it. And so there, there's really, it seems like the Holy Spirit is doing something, mm. uh, something special here. And mm. um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what energizes me and, and gets me excited as I think about the future. Amen. Me too. Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. I mean, I've I've changed it a little bit, maybe. Maybe I'm getting just older and more cynical. But uh, when I was in youth ministry, Willie would hear me talk about this quite a bit, that as I was talking to teenagers and young adults on a regular basis, I said, I can feel like, I don't think, I just feel some like rumblings amongst them of like possible revival eventually. Like, not, I don't know how soon, it could be decades, but I just feel an uneasiness about what the culture is saying and people realizing like this is empty and there's nothing here. And we're kind of seeing that even more and more, I think, recently. And so, yeah, I, uh, I've changed it a little bit to say like, well, um, we're either going to see revival or we're going to see total collapse. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the verge of something big happening, um, and it's uh, it's either God's going to be in His grace and mercy, going to show us uh, uh, another revival here, which would be uh, really fun to be a part of, um, or God's going to say, "All right, I've had enough," and uh, and turn turn away for a, a time because He does that to nations too, right? That's all we have for this week. If you want to help us out and support the Messy Reformation, another thing you can do is sign up for our newsletter through Substack. That way, you'll get episodes and summaries sent directly to your email inbox. It will also give us the opportunity to communicate with our audience, which is one of the biggest struggles of a podcast. So head over to the Messy Reformation on Substack and sign up for our newsletter. Now, stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Nick Monsma. But until then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So, keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.